And we're going to finish chapter 8 this week. We're going to finish this sub-series that I've entitled, My Dad is Stronger Than Yours. It's been a, a, an argument over patriarchy and lineage, an, ar, uh, an argument over uh, you know, heritage, these kind of things, which is a big deal to the first century Jew. And just you know, as a reminder, this is only a day after the conclusion of the Feast and Tabernacles. Jesus went up to that feast at the beginning of John chapter 7. You know, there's a lot of material here, so it feels like it should be spread out. But this is actually just the day after the feast has ended. And he's been in this conversation, not only with the crowd, but within the crowd, there's Jewish religious leaders. And the heat just continues to get turned up with these guys as Jesus is trying to identify who he is and what he's been there for. And he said some things that has left people not only scratching their heads, but getting really upset. And just as a quick summary, he's telling this crowd, you claim Abraham as your father, but you don't do what Abraham did. He's going to get more specific about that in this morning. He told them that they were slaves to sin. I think that phrase is not in the book, how to win friends and influence people. I just don't think that you probably should tell people that if you're trying to impress them or get them to like you, but Jesus said it. Well, this one was a doozy. Remember he said that you're going to die in your sin. If you don't believe in me, you're going to die in your sins. Another thing that didn't make it into the final cut of how to win friends and influence people. And then the big bomb was he told them that the devil was their father. Y'all think Abraham's your father. You think God's your father. No, the devil is your father. Wow. What a mic drop. What a bomb he dropped. And last week, Jesus made this claim. In fact, I, let's just read it again because it's, it's just this astounding claim. This is what we're going to build off of this morning. They're going to respond to this emphatic claim. In verse 51, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Remember, we broke that word never down. It's actually a phrase in the Greek. It's ume, ice tone, iona, ume, never, no, not ever, ice tone, iona, into the ages, right? It's like the most emphatic way you could say it's never, ever, ever going to happen if you keep my word. And so they are upset, to say the least. They're like, who, and this is what they're going to say, who do you think you are to talk like that? You're crazy. And what it does is it sets up uh, another, what I would call mic drop moment. I, it's just modern vernacular. Jesus is going to say something here, and he's just going to drop the microphone, and it's just going to be like, Mind blown. One of my, probably, I, I know I said that about verse 44. The, those that weren't here two weeks ago, you didn't hear me say this, but I said that, that that was probably my favorite mic drop moment. This might be my favorite. I'm kind of battling back and forth uh, with this one this morning. It's, and this one might be my most favorite mic drop moment in all of scripture. And even when Josh read it, it gave me goosebumps earlier. And so let's, uh, let's dive in this morning. Let's see how they respond to what Jesus just said in verse 51. Verse 52 reads, then the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead and the prophets. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. They say, we know this. We know that you have a demon. It's interesting because it's the Greek word. It means to come to know. And what's interesting about the word is it's used in the perfect tense. It indicates the concept of now we had some suspicions before that you had a demon, but now we're totally convinced. That's the idea. We've come to know now because of your words and what you're saying, you have a demon. By the way, unpardonable sin committed again, right here, right? We talked about that last week, Matthew 12. They said he had a demon. They're saying, now we know you've got a demon. And they're, they're gonna give their reasoning for that. And I point that out to just say that the unpardonable sin, which is really just crediting Jesus's miracles to the power of Satan instead of to the power of God, which again, was only a sin that could be committed in the first century with Jesus present, 
Okay, and we, we talked about that a little bit last week. But this was an ongoing mindset, and that's what I want to draw out here. This, is, this was their mindset because they only had two options. Either what Jesus was doing was, and, and, and oftentimes they couldn't deny his miracles. That was, that was the thing. They couldn't deny his miracles. But they only had two solutions for that. One was to say it's coming from God, but the other, the other solution for them and their thinking was it's coming from Satan because Satan can falsify miracles. We've seen that in the Old Testament. They chose the latter. They looked at Jesus. They chose the latter. What's really cool is when we get into chapter 9, Jesus is going to do a miracle that they cannot credit to Satan. But they're still going to deny that it's divine. They're just not going to say it's from Satan. We'll see how that all plays out. Everything Jesus just said in verse 51 about keeping his word. Remember, we spent time looking at that last week. Keeping his word, valuing his word, considering his word, keeping your eyes fixed on his word so that there's a high value attributed to it. Everything he just said about that, they just threw it out the window. It just went in one ear and out the other. We might say they've got, you know, slippery... <laughs> Slippery eardrums, a lot of earwax buildup. It's just words aren't sticking, man. It's just sliding right out. Because we see everything he said, they're like, now we know. In fact, they're using his words against him now. And the reasoning is this. Here's the reasoning. Abraham's dead and the prophets. And, and the idea that Abraham is dead, even the prophets, these, these highly elevated men in Judaism are dead. How could Jesus talk about never seeing death? That's ridiculous. If Abraham saw death, then clearly everyone's going to see death. And in this, this statement that Jesus is saying, it's, it doesn't make any sense. In fact, notice what they say. They repeat what he said. If anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. And do you see what they did there? They just switched the word. It's not that they did anything wrong. It just gives us an understanding of how they interpreted what Jesus said. And what they say, if you, if you look at it closely, is they repeat his statement, but they substitute the word taste for see in their restatement of what he said. See, he had said, you'll never see death. And they said, you said, you'll never taste death. And so the, the word taste means exactly that. It's like what you think of with food, but metaphorically, it meant to experience. The idea is that you wouldn't experience death. You wouldn't participate in death. It's used this way in Hebrews 2.9, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death or experience death for everyone. This is the good news of the gospel right here and how it's used. Jesus, in his death 2,000 years ago, can actually experience the death that you deserved to pay. That's why it's such good news. Because if he took your death for you, you don't have to face it yourself. And so this is how they interpreted it. They, they understood that Jesus was saying that they wouldn't experience death, but they took his words on a very horizontal plane. They're thinking physical death only. And one of the things I think we've got to understand, because this can get confusing for us as well. In fact, we're going to get to Lazarus uh, in, in chapter 11, and Jesus is going to say, this sickness is not unto death. Well, literally, as the words are coming out of his mouth, Lazarus died that very day, if you do kind of the math, which we'll do when we get to verse to chapter 11. So the point is this, is the promise of eternal life doesn't promise the absence of physical death. But physical death just becomes a passageway to eternal life. It's not the, it's not the end. Jesus is not talking about that here. By the way, there's only, there is one generation, we believe, in the church age that will not have to experience physical death. Which generation is that? I'll give you a hint. Yeah. <laughs> the rapture, right? 
the rapture. And, and you know why God can still be true when he says it's appointed unto men once to die? And after this, the judgment, people will say, well, how is that true? And the rapture can happen. Hebrews 2.9, Jesus tasted death. He experienced death for everybody. Literally that generation, his death is going to count in their place. And they're free to go to heaven without physically dying. Jesus isn't talking about physical death here, but he is promising deliverance from the ultimate death, which is separation from God for eternity. This is what Jesus meant by saying, if you keep my word, if you believe my word, you'll never taste or experience, I believe what he's talking about is ultimate death here. They take it horizontal. They're like, well, what are you talking about? Abraham died, the prophets died, who are you? Which is kind of what they're going to go on to say here. Verse 53, are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead, and the prophets are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? By the way, they're anticipating a negative answer. It's kind of like, surely you're not saying you're greater than Abraham. Surely you don't think you're better than Abraham. And you know, it's so, it's so sad because as these Jewish leaders are looking at Jesus, they are totally misevaluating the situation. They're looking at the all-star and they're treating him like he's on the JV team. They, they're treating him like he's the water boy. And then they're taking the water boy in the grand scheme of things. Abraham, I know he's probably, maybe he's the varsity water boy, right? They're taking him and they're putting him in the place of the all-star. And they are totally misevaluating the situation. And it's really, it's really tragic because everything was there for them to recognize that Jesus was greater than Abraham. But in their mind, no way, you're not greater than Abraham. Abraham is greater than you. So they are anticipating this. By the way, we're going to see that Jesus not only predated Abraham, which is the problem they had, but that he was the source of Abraham's very existence. (laughs) That was hard for them to take in, looking at this man, Jesus Christ, in the face. And so the prophets are dead. Again, they're focused on physical death, not eternal death. And then the question becomes, who do you make yourself out to be? Who do you think you are? Who are you claiming to be? That's kind of the question. Jesus is going to answer that form very directly when we get to verse 58. He tries to answer it a different way, but again, they don't get it. We'll see as we go. Now, one of the things that we've said this before, but it's very important to understand, the average Jew in the first century thinks, thought that uh, eternal and spiritual death being separated from God would never happen to any Jew. In fact, there was rabbinical teaching that taught that basically Abraham was camped down in his lawn chair on the path into Hades. And if he saw a Jew heading down the wrong path, he would grab him and say, sir, you belong over here and bring him into the kingdom or bring him into Abraham's bosom or paradise. They taught this, that to be separated from God in his eternal kingdom, that was unfathomable for a Jew. For Jesus to even talk about this spiritually, this is probably why they went physically. They're like, well, of course, we're not going to be separated spiritually. So he must be talking physical. So that was probably why they go there. Now, what's interesting about this is, is we go into verse uh, 54 and 55. Jesus is going, is going to answer them. He's going to start to answer them. And he's going to say this. If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. We talked about this earlier, but the word honor means to glorify. It means to give someone esteem. It means to put them in an honorable position. It means to raise them to a high and exalted status. And this makes sense because 
If he were to honor himself right now, lift himself up, nobody likes that guy, right? Nobody likes the guy that's like lifting themselves up. In fact, the word honor is a present tense. It's saying that Jesus, if, if I did it right now, if I told you exactly, it wouldn't even matter. And, and the idea is you wouldn't be listening anyways, is kind of the idea. It wouldn't make a dent in your thinking, even if I did honor or glorify myself. And this is why I believe he says my honor is nothing. In other words, it's nothing to you. It wouldn't be a strong argument for you if I actually esteemed and exalted myself. That won't get your attention. But as Jesus is going to point out, there's someone else whose opinion should matter to you. There's someone else whose opinion should be uh, the one opinion that you care about. And this is why he's going to say that his father does honor him. He won't honor himself, but he says, right now, it is my father who is honoring me. He's recognizing me. He's esteeming me. He's lifting me up. He's investing me with dignity. How is he doing that? By validating his words and his ministry through these signs and wonders. God is exalting. God the Father is exalting Jesus Christ. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's, in fact, he uses this present tense indicative right now. God's pleased with him. Right now, God is exalting him in the mind's eye of his audience. Now, why is he saying that? Because what is his audience doing? They're not doing that. They are diminishing him. We're going to see in verse 59, not only are they not exalting him, they want to crush him with stones. They want to throw him down a hill. That's what they did when they stoned you. They threw you to a lower, you know, they took you in a rock ledge. They put you down there so you couldn't go anywhere. And then they just pelted you until you died. This is what they're trying to do. It's the, it's the exact opposite of what God the Father is doing. And Jesus is trying to explain this to them. The one opinion that should matter to you, you're not even taking into consideration. Take me out of the equation and just listen to him. But as we'll see, he is not going to do that. And by the way, this is the very God that they keep on saying, he's my God. This is my God. I worship Yahweh. I worship Yahweh alone. And Jesus is saying, y'all don't even listen to him. You're not even paying attention to who he's seeking to honor. You're just blowing him off. In fact, it's uh, it's in the present tense or it's in the imperfect tense. They keep on saying, they keep on saying it's, and that's what religious people do. They 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 talk so much. They try to convince you of their righteousness. You know what truly righteous people do? They're occupied with Jesus Christ, and whether or not you think they're righteous or not doesn't matter a hill of beans to them because they're focused on an audience of one. They're not, if everybody in the room thinks you're unrighteous and God thinks you're righteous, then guess what? You're in good company. You don't need the majority. This isn't a democracy here. This is, how does God view this? Let's get in line with God's thinking. And if everyone else is out of line, they're the ones that are crooked. I'm on a straight line and I'm going to walk that way. Jesus is saying, man, you guys are just, you know, basically bumping your gums about how God is your God and how God is always your God and how you do everything. You love Yahweh. You, and they're totally wrong. They're not even listening to Yahweh. They're totally blowing him off and not paying attention. I want to just point out as we go into this next phrase, uh, as you see in verse 55, he's going to use this word no, what, three, three or four, yeah, four times. But it's not the same word in the Greek. He switches back and forth between two words. Now, that could be significant. I think there's a little significance. It might just be a stylistic change. That's definitely a possibility. But in terms of it being significant, one word emphasized the process of coming to know. Okay, when you went to school, we would use that word no. 
Because you didn't show up to, to Algebra 1 on the first day and go, yeah, just give me all, you know, 10 tests you're going to give me this year. Let me just blow through this and get out of this class. You were like, I got to learn this stuff. And I got to learn it step by step by step by step. That's the process of knowing. That's one word. The other word is, is, is knowing something intuitively, knowing something instinctively, that you just kind of walk into the situation and you know. You know, if I'm walking down the streets of Atlanta and I see a couple of guys in a hoodie, I, I, I mean, hoodies to me scare me. I, I, it's like, if I'm, if I'm out with my family, I, we were just in Atlanta last week and, and, and coming out of the, uh, we went to a basketball game, we are coming out of the arena. And I, it, for me to try to look tougher so no one would mess with us, I put my hoodie on. Because <laughs> I'm trying to, you know, I want to scare the bad guys from messing with me, right? So where am I going with, okay, I know where I'm going with that. But intuitively, if you, if you walk down a, a dark alleyway and you see a couple guys in hoodies, you're probably like, oops, wrong alleyway. See, you guys, I'm going to... There's some things that you instinctively know, or you should. You should know. <laughs> but this, there's a difference here. All right, so when we get to verse 55, what's he talking about? Well, when Jesus talks about them, when he talks about his audience, this Jewish religious audience, he says, yet you have not known him. That's the, the word meaning come to know. It means it's the word receiving knowledge. In fact, throughout Jesus's ministry, just, if we just take Jesus's ministry in his words, they have not paid attention enough to learn or grow in any kind of knowledge of what Jesus is teaching them. Their knowledge of God, you might say, was, was retarded. It was stunted. It, it, just didn't, it just didn't grow. And not only that, but Jesus uses it in, a, in the perfect tense. So very important because he's saying you never had this knowledge in the past, at a point in time in the past, and you still remain in a state where you're not gaining it, okay? So it's kind of a subtle slam. <laughs> he's saying you don't know him, and, and your, your lack of knowledge remains in the present, you're not growing in your understanding about God. Now, by the way, would this have been a highly offensive statement to Jewish religious leaders that all they did was study the Old Testament Torah? Highly offensive. Because if anyone in the culture knew God, it's the Jewish religious leaders. It's the Pharisees, right? In fact, that'd be like telling a pastor after, you know, getting done with, you know, four years of seminary, five years, some cram, you know, four or five years into four, but, or vice versa. To tell, that, to tell that trained pastor, you don't know the word of God. And that would be, wow, that's like, a, that's like a gut punch, right? It may be true though, but it's, it's a gut punch. Well, it was true of Jesus's audience. They would have been deeply offended by this. You have not known him, not yet known him. But Jesus says, but I know him. And Jesus switches words here. I know him intuitively, instinctively. And I think because Jesus is saying this because he himself is saying this. This is why I think the significance and the switch of words is significant because Jesus is basically saying, I've always known him. I don't have to learn anything about him. I didn't have to come through a process to gain knowledge about my father. It's my, it's my daddy. <laughs> I've been with him for eternity past. We're going to see he's going to say that. And so in contrast to Jesus' audience who's never known the father, Jesus has always known the father. Again, not through a gained knowledge, but he's always known him from eternity past. Jesus is basically saying, you guys have never come to know the Father, and I've never not known the Father. You can see there's, a, there's a, again, Jesus, is, uh, the, the rhetoric is, is rising, but he does it out of love. He does it to care. He's like, you guys have never known him the way that you could, and I've never not known him. 
And this is why it's, it's kind of a funny statement that Jesus says, if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you. <laughs> I, I mean, just the funny statement again. But when someone's not getting it, what do you do sometimes? You, you shake their tree. You got to shake their tree. You got to get their attention or they're not going to get it. See, they claimed to know God. They were liars. Jesus did know God and he wouldn't say that he did it to just go along with the conversation and just take the temperature in the room down a little bit. He knew it was rising. He knew that that was coming. But notice what Jesus says. And this, I, I think he's, he's hearkening back to verse 51 again. He says, but I do know him. And notice what he says, I keep his word. Again, he emphasizes he's always known them. But notice what he says, I keep his word. This is the same exact word he used back in verse 51. It's tereo. It means to guard. It means to keep an eye on. It means to watch. It was used of a warden watching a highly valuable prisoner that they did not want to escape. It was used of people guarding a highly valuable object like a diamond. They would not take their eyes off of that highly valued object. We talked last week about my cat. You know, you don't, you don't take your eye off a plate of food in my household because my cat will eat it, right? So this is what we're talking about here. Jesus represents, and what he states here is his high value and single focused attention that he gave to the word of the Father. And you think to yourself, Jesus Christ was the son of God. He was the word incarnate. And yet as he lived his life on earth, his highest value, his, his primary focus was God the Father and the words of God the Father. That's what he adjusted everything in his life according to. In fact, we believe that he believed that. He stated it often. But remember what he said to Satan in the wilderness during the temptation? It takes us back all the way to Matthew 4.4. 4. He answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus believed that. Jesus took that verse, quoting from Deuteronomy 8.3, literally. He, he literally believed that he couldn't live without the word of God in his life. And you say, man, that sounds really intense. I think it is intense. I think it is a moment by moment reliance upon the Lord and his resources. And I think Jesus lived moment by moment in reliance upon the Father's resources and I think that's exactly how each one of you and each one of me, there's only one of me, is designed to live. This is how we're designed to live. And yet we go about our lives, we go about our days, and oftentimes <clears throat> we will make decisions that are simply governed by how we feel. And by the way, feelings make an excellent caboose, they make a terrible engine. If your life is a train, there's a mixing metaphors here, right? Feelings are not designed to drive your life. Feelings are not designed to drive your decisions. The principles of the word of God, the truth of the word of God, the character of God, that's what's designed to drive your decisions. And oftentimes it looks like maybe if I trust God, I'm gonna make a terrible decision. Or if I trust God, I'm gonna get hurt. And if I do it God's way, I'm just gonna keep getting hurt. Let me just encourage you, trust the one who knows. Trust his processes, trust his word. So oftentimes we will just make decisions based on our own evaluations and we literally live out the verse opposite from what we have, not crocheted, I always say crocheted, cross-stitched on our walls. Thanks, Julia. Yeah. <laughs> Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. We just live it the opposite. 
Don't trust the Lord with anything. You might get hurt and lean really heavily on your own understanding. And then in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. In all your ways, acknowledge me. In all my ways, acknowledge how I feel. In all my ways, acknowledge what I think is gonna work the best. And occasionally I'll look to the Lord when I need a little bump across the finish line. But other than that, I got this guy. Just kind of stay over there out of my way. I'll direct my paths. Terrible idea. Terrible idea. We, we live in a life that has many paths and there's lots of poison ivy, spiritual poison ivy out there. And I learned that often when I moved here to Georgia that I, as much as I thought I could recognize poison ivy, I still can't recognize it. And you know what? It's just, it's a great illustration for my Christian life. I think I can just walk on this power. Yeah, that's poison. I'm going to avoid that. I, I can step in this stuff. Then I come back the next day. I got welts all over my life. I mean, it's just, it gets system, systemic in my body. I got stuff coming. It's like, I know I didn't touch the top of my head to that leaf, but I got it up here now. And spiritually speaking, this is exactly what we do. We lean on our own understanding. And as we sit here today, I, I feel like, and I don't even know everybody in the room. I feel like we, we would all agree that's a dumb way to live. And yet, you know what? Before the day's out, Many of us will do, we'll go right back on that path. And we're like, I wonder if this, this, this leaf is good for wiping something, you know? Or, I mean, <laughs> it's not. It's not. We got to stop leaning on our understanding. Sorry, I'm getting off now. The point is this. Feelings and our own evaluations are terrible guardrails to live the Christian life. Terrible guardrails. Terrible guardrails. Jesus understood this. This is exactly how he conducted his earthly ministry. He submitted to the word of the Father. He lived, he breathed, he waited on, he considered, he he took into account the word of the Father, the will of the Father in everything that he did. And if Jesus did it, it's probably a good example for us to follow. That's the point. And by the way, this is one of those things that really comes to bear when you hit trials, anxieties, and difficulties. You always talk about the practical Christian life. The practical Christian life is not giving you three things to do when you face anxieties. It is learning how in that moment to understand the promises of God and the word of God and begin to rely upon them where they become personal and practical to you. If you, if you are a success in your life because you're so smart and brilliant and you figure out how to get your way out of every jam, you are a loser in the spiritual life because you've never allowed the Lord to deliver you. And see, that's the mindset. I don't want just deliverance. I don't want just to get out of the trial. I want to get the benefit of what God has got for me in this trial because I want to hold his hand more consistently. I want to enjoy him more consistently. I want to give him an opportunity to show up and show out on my behalf because when he does, then I'm going to be able to trust him more. And that's exactly what he wants for you as well. Just a dependent child leaning on him. Now, by the way, Jesus is now going to come back to Abraham. He's kind, of, he's kind of made some points. They keep going to Abraham, so he comes back to Abraham. And listen to what Jesus says about Abraham in verse 56. I don't think they're going to, this is going to, well, I don't think. I know this is not going to set well with them. He says this, your father, Abraham, rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Now, were they that excited about Jesus' day? No, they, they felt the exact opposite. They, they wanted to kill Jesus. The word rejoice here used by Jesus, I, I have to define that. It's just incredible. The word means to exult, to leap for joy, to show one's joy by leaping and skipping, denoting excessive joy and delight. 
The idea is that there was so much joy that it would show up externally and outwardly. This isn't just those that golf, you know, the golf clap. It's like, it's like you're really excited. You might go, this isn't the golf clap. This is like, you're pumped, man. Or you're at NASCAR, maybe. I don't know, screaming. I don't know what the best image of that is. But he's excited. Abraham's pumped up. He's excited about Jesus' day. This is what Jesus says. In fact, the word day, I think he's just referring to Jesus' time period, the time period that he would be on earth. And the thing that got Abraham so excited was the time frame that the Messiah, who is Jesus, would make his appearance on earth to accomplish everything that God the Father designed for him to accomplish. And Abraham was looking forward to that. By the way, would Jesus' audience have said the same thing about themselves? They would have. They would have said, we're looking forward to the Messiah too. But Jesus is now saying, the Messiah you're looking for, that's me. And Abraham was looking forward to my day. In fact, he says he saw it and was glad. He saw it. We're going to come back to that. But the idea that Abraham saw Jesus' day, the word see means with perception and understanding, that there was an actual perception and understanding that somehow Abraham gave. Now, commentators debate on what does that mean. We'll, We'll kind of talk a little bit about that. Like, did he get a special revelation where he saw Jesus? Was it through the revelation he received. We'll talk about that here in a second. But you know that Abraham wasn't the only one who was looking forward to the day of the Messiah. In fact, we learn from the scriptures that Old Testament saints longed for this day. They longed to experience the Messianic age. Matthew 13, 17 says this, for surely I say to you, notice that word, that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Why did they desire it and weren't able to? Because Jesus came in the first century. So if they died before that, they weren't able to experience the the ministry of the Messiah on earth, but they were looking forward to it, just like Abraham was. As I mentioned, when did Abraham see it? Well, commentators differ on this, but it seems most likely that God saw Christ's day, this time period, through the prophetic word of God. Specifically, I think for Abraham, I think it was the seed provision, the seed promise in the Abrahamic covenant. If you want to, I guess, understand the the total train rail of the Bible, you got to start right in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. That's going to give you the entire picture of the Bible because God calls Abraham out of Ur. He establishes in Abraham a nation, and then he makes a promise for land, seed, and blessing. Do you know that to this day that Israel has never possessed the entire promised land that God promised them? and defined uh, later in the Old Testament that they don't have a king currently sitting on the the throne in an everlasting throne, and that the new covenant, the the full blessings of the new covenant as it relates to the the nation of Israel has not been extended. You know when all three of those things will come true? During the millennial kingdom reign of Christ. This gives us the entire picture of the Bible. God is working toward fulfilling those promises. But but notice uh, in the seed provision, Genesis 12, 3, in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And even more specific later in Genesis twenty two eighteen, 18, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham knew that, that through his lineage, that God was going to send the Messiah, that God was going to do something through his lineage. I believe Abraham probably looked back to the promise made uh, in the garden, Genesis three fifteen, and said, that promise deliverer is now coming through my seed. I look forward to that day. I'm excited about that day. You know, I'm, I'm still as a man having to, to go up and offer sacrifices in an altar. And I, I believe one day my God is going to take care of my sin problem. 
and it's going to come through my seed. And he was looking forward to that day. In fact, Paul also references this promise. In fact, in Galatians 3, Paul says that this promise, this seed promise, was God preaching the gospel to Abraham. Look what he says in Galatians 3, 7 through 8. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. Preaching the gospel, the good news that you can be blessed with a righteousness equal to God's righteousness, not based on your behavior, but based on trusting in God's solution. And all the way back in Genesis 12, he's preaching the gospel, which is incredible. We could even go back to, I believe, Genesis 3.15, which is the first mention of that promise deliver and how God was going to solve our sin problem. And so the point is this, when Abraham saw it, he was glad, he rejoiced. He knew God was going to fulfill his promises. He was in a state of happiness, rest, and well-being. The point is simple. Abraham would not have agreed with Jesus's audience's attitude toward Jesus. That's the point. And Jesus is pointing this out. And if they were truly sons of Abraham, they'd be just as excited as their great-granddaddy, basically. Great-great-granddaddy. And so what's interesting here is as we move forward to verse, uh, from verse 56, they don't ask any questions necessarily in terms of like, well, what do you mean by that? Notice what they do. They get mad. Verse 57, they're going to get more irritated. Then the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? They're kind of, you know, they're doing quick math here. They're like, wait a minute, 2,000 years ago. No way, you haven't seen Abraham. Um, By the way, did you notice how they switched it to? Jesus had said nothing about seeing Abraham. He had said Abraham saw him. You you notice how they switched that? And religious people often do that. They, They make it about you instead of about Jesus, right? In fact, is is salvation about you giving your life to Christ? Or is it about Christ giving his life for you. See how we do that? We, we have this tendency to do that a lot. We bump the spotlight off of where it needs to be. They've done the same thing here. They said, have you seen Abraham? By the way, had Jesus seen Abraham? Yeah, that is true, but it's not what he said. He said, Abraham saw my day. And the question should have been, what do you mean, Jesus, that Abraham was leaping for joy to see? What do you mean by that? That should have been the question, but they don't ask that question. And now... It brings us to verse 58, which is Jesus is going to answer their question in the most emphatic way that I think is possible in in language. What he's going to say here is the most emphatic and I think one of the best uh, absolute mic drop moments in all of scripture. Verse 58, Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I want to point out a couple of things as we get into this verse. Number one, you see that phrase, most assuredly. It's the fourth time that Jesus has used this in the conversation. It's simply the Greek phrase, amen, amen. Okay, so it's just a repeated word, which gives it an emphasis. It's an emphatic way for Jesus to say what I'm about to say is super duper trustworthy. You can take what I'm about to say to the bank. It's kind of the idea. And so he's about to tell them something important. Most assuredly, listen up emphatically. I'm about to tell you something that you need to know. And he says, before Abraham was, I am. And so they're trying to figure out exactly what they're saying. They're, they're trying uh, this line of questioning. And it, what it does is it brings Jesus to the point where he's just got to say it in clear Greek or clear Aramaic, it, you know, whatever this was recorded, this, this conversation was in. 
I'm going to break down a couple words here, but, but bear with me because it seems like, why are you defining was? Well, was, when he describes Abraham was, it's a word meaning to begin to be. It's a word meaning to come into existence. It implies that, that Abraham had an origin. He had a start date on his life. Uh, in other words, Jesus could have said, before Abraham was born and came into this world, okay? It's kind of the idea. And then Jesus doesn't say, I was. Before Abraham was, I was. That's true, too. But it's more emphatic than that. Because I am is this phrase, ego a me, that Jesus uses often in the book of John, which is literally translated, I am, I am. Ego means I am, a me means I am in a certain construction. He is saying, I am, I am. Now, anybody that has any familiarity with the Old Testament, which obviously Jesus' audience did, that would have triggered their thinking a little bit. In fact, they're probably sitting there waiting for the direct object to fall. I am what? What are you? And it never falls because he stops right there. He says, I am. And again, there's no periods in the Greek, but, but in a sense, he put a period there. He didn't go on with a direct object. And so what is Jesus referencing? Well, he's referencing, I believe, Exodus 3. This is the most clear declaration of this phrase in the entire Old Testament. It's the burning bush experience with Moses. Moses says, you know, God, I'm willing to go to the people and tell them this, but they're going to ask me what your name is. What should I tell them is your name? And he says, you tell them I am sent you. I am I am. In fact, when you look at the, uh, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, this exact phrase, ego, ami, was attributed to Yahweh himself. So they're probably waiting for that dangling direct object, and, and it never comes. And they're like, wait a minute, did he just say what I think he said? And that's exactly what they're going to see. And you'll see their response in verse 59. Here's the difference. Jesus is not the water boy. Jesus is the all-star. Abraham's the water boy. Jesus is the all-star. Because there was a time that Abraham was not. But there was never a time that Jesus was not. He has always been. Now, wrap your mind around that as a first century Jew. That is tough to swallow for them. And hence, God was very gracious in saying, okay, I'm going to send this man. I'm going to fulfill prophecy that you know, so you can verify it as it's happening. I'm going to have him do signs and wonders that only a divinely sourced person can do to convince you because when he starts mic dropping this stuff, you're going to say, okay, I believe that because of, I've seen all this, but because they've just chosen to reject all this, this right here is just going to absolutely infuriate them. Notice too, and I think this is huge. Jesus had a carefully worded statement here. He did not say before Abraham was, I was, but before Abraham was, I am. Beautiful statement. Because if he was just claiming that he existed before Abraham, he could have just said, I was. But he's not claiming preexistence only. He's claiming deity. He's claiming that I've never not existed. I am that I am from eternity past. There's so many things that probably come to mind when Jesus said this. And I want to just kind of walk through the Old Testament with Abraham here real, real briefly. I'm just going to uh, blow through some points. That means when The Jews said they're praying to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're praying to Jesus. Jesus is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus is the one who called Abraham an Ur of the Chaldees. Jesus is the one who promised the land, seed, and blessing 
in the Abrahamic covenant. Jesus is the one who provided Abraham and Sarah with a natural born son past their prime childbearing age. And Jesus is the one who visited them to reconfirm his promise. You remember that just before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, there were three men. I believe Jesus was one of those men. And we could make that argument another day. But Jesus is the one who told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. And then it was Jesus who provided a sacrificial lamb. See, Jesus is good at providing a sacrificial lamb. In fact, he provided himself. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He'd done that before. (laughs) He knew exactly what he was doing. How did they respond? Well, not well. Verse 59. Then they took up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. So clearly they had understood what Jesus had just said and claimed. In their mind, this here's a normal man claiming to be Yahweh. The law dictates that man must be stoned. What's really, I think what's really interesting about it is because they were under Roman rule, that culturally they were not allowed to stone anybody. So this was actually against Roman law. Had they actually executed and we'll see they would have executed it had God not protected Jesus we're going to see that in the next phrase they were actually willing to face the potential backlash of the Roman army just to take him out they were ready they were they were in but then we see this next phrase but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple really interesting because i think most of the translations word it that way I I need to do some more research i i tried to do as much as i could but it but it's actually in the passive voice this isn't Jesus hiding himself. This is Jesus was hidden. Somebody else hid Jesus. That's what passive voice means, that an external actor acted upon him and and performed this action. So I think a, a better translation would be that Jesus was hidden from the crowd, implied who hid Jesus. Well, the one who's protecting him, the one who whose hour is the only thing that matters as it relates to Jesus being taken. How it how God the Father did this. How he went about this, how it happened, we don't know. The details are not given in the text. But if you can imagine a, a group of people picking up stones to stone somebody, we see him right there, and then they start looking around, and he literally walks through them unscathed. That's a miracle. That's, that's a supernatural miracle. The one thing that we can be confident in as we see throughout the book of John is this fact, it wasn't his hour yet. It's not his hour. Six months from now, they're going to see him. They're going to get their hands on him. They're going to do atrocious things to him. They're going to pull, they're going to pull hair out of his beard. They're going, to, they're going to turn him over to the Rome. They're going to see him. He's not going to be hidden at that point. But here he is, six months from now, he won't be untouchable. Today, in this account, he was. And it says, notice, he went through the midst of them. Now, I can see if it's like, hey, the, the disciples ran a little diversion and Jesus escaped around the corner. That's still a good story, right? I mean, that's, I mean, this is an incredible story, though. It's like head held high, shoulders back. I'm in the will of God. I'm walking right through the crowd that wants to kill me, and God hides me. Just incredible to see the supernatural thing that takes place as he walks right through this angry mob. And this apparently is how he was hidden, talking to them one minute. Next minute, he walked right through the crowd without being recognized. Now, what's really fascinating is as you start to look at this chapter, the chapter began and ends the same way with an unsuccessful stoning. Remember the, the woman caught in adultery. They wanted to stone her. They didn't get it done. 
Now they want to stone the Son of God, the Messiah. They don't get it done. So it ends and starts the same way. But Jesus, as we go on, in fact, notice in verse 1, same exact trip. There's no, there's no time lapse here. But verse 1 in chapter 9, now as Jesus passed by, saw a man who was blind from birth. Jesus is going to do something now, immediately following this conversation, immediately following walking through this crowd that wants to stone him. He's going to stop. You know, you would think, man, I got through the crowd. I better get out of Dodge for a couple of days. He doesn't do that. In fact, what he does is he does one of the most incredible miracles. I wouldn't say the most incredible, but one of the most incredible miracles for a Jew. He's going to take a man who was born blind from birth and give him sight. And according to the Jewish mind, only God could do that. And guess what? They are right about that. But they are going to deny that, as we'll see getting into that story next week. Let's close there with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for Jesus' clear declaration here that we've got it recorded for us to look at. It is amazing to look at him and to consider that he always was, that the book of Revelation records it well. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He never did not exist, and he never will not exist. And we just thank you that we've got a Savior who's living, who promises eternal life, and can actually execute the promises that he's given based on the work he accomplished. We're so grateful for the Lord Jesus. May we leave this room, each one of us, with a, just a higher view of him than when we came in. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.